After many years of practicing and studying the Buddha's teachings, I became interested in the Buddha as a person, as a figure, as a man who lived 2,600 years ago, and interested in kind of understanding his life and the times that he lived in. So for a couple of years in a row, I actually went on pilgrimage to India, where I did this circuit that's called the Buddhist Holy Sites, and you visit the places where he was born, lived, taught, and then died. And it was fascinating to be in India, walking in the places that we know the Buddha walked in and visited and taught in. And it just really brought an aspect of the teachings to life and also um, was brought to life because in some ways India hasn't changed that much, especially rural India. I mean, modern India is there, sure, the big cities, they're dynamic and skyscrapers and everything. um, But there are scenes you can see in rural India that were pretty much the same as what would have been there in the time of the Buddha. And so a lot of the similes that he used, the descriptive images of ox carts and fires burning and um, people threshing wheat and, and uh, the rivers and the plains, you can see them all and they really don't feel as though they've changed. So it was um, it just brought the teachings to life when you read the, the classical teachings and it talks about being in such and such a place talking to these kind of people. And it gave me a little more understanding about the religion that was around in his day, even though that has evolved in India, but still some uh, strands of it are still very much alive. It was a Brahmanical religion, which meant that there was a was a caste system, a very simple caste system, not as stratified as India is these days. But there was a priestly class who held all of the spiritual power, and they performed rituals and, and kept the sacred texts, and it was only through them that you could... Um, be purified or forgiven or absolved from whatever you had committed. So they held all that and believed that through certain rituals of fire and water and sacrifice, that that was the way to a a spiritual um, practice and certainly to a better plane of existence. So it was a very sort of ritualistic, um, uh, elemental kind of religion. And so the Buddha was um, not of that caste, but one that was just below that. Very well-educated young man would have known all these teachings, um, but saw that there wasn't in that what he was looking for. He actually fled his home and went off in search of enlightenment, which he firmly believed was possible. And he tried all the practices of his day. You know, he didn't think that the ritualistic ones would do it, but he tried um, concentration practices and ascetic practices to real extremes. I mean, whatever he did, he did 100% and mastered them all and found that they were not the way to awakening. And so through his own um, insight, through his own revelation, through his own awakening, he discovered a radical shift in how to... Um, come to liberation. Instead of looking outward to ritual and sacrifice and praying to the gods, his insight was to turn the attention to what's happening, to this body and mind, not to calm it down and just get concentrated, but really to investigate it and see its nature. And so this, this was radical. No one had ever done that before. And I think to this day, it's still quite radical. So his teaching was to be present, 
to actually look at what's happening here and now and to see the forces of greed, aversion and delusion in the mind and see that that's what the source of suffering is and that the ending of that same greed, aversion and delusion is the ending of suffering, is awakening. And so this was his message. This is what he taught and what has come down to us these 2,500 years later. So we're practicing in that tradition that he began during his Night of Enlightenment under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. You can still go and sit under a, a grand child of that tree and feel the power of that awakening that he had. We're doing the same kind of investigation that he encouraged us to do, to sit still, to turn inward and investigate. Using the practices of shamatha or uh, tranquility meditation to calm the mind and body so we can pay attention, so it's calm enough so we can see what's happening. When we do this, when we sit, calm a little bit and start to pay attention, what we start to, um, what starts to open up for us is insight on two different levels. The first one, and usually the, the, the one that most people begin with, is on a personal level. It's just beginning to understand our own conditioning, this mind and body, and its particular manifestations and ways that we cause ourselves suffering. And, you know, a lot of what we talk about is how to work with that, the, the thoughts, the, the memories, the conditioning, the constriction, the self-judging. This is a really powerful and important part of our meditation practice. But another level that's equally and actually really, really more important is the impersonal level, where we start to really see the nature of the way things are that aren't individual to each of us but are rather um, universal. These laws of nature, this is the Dhamma that we start to see when we meditate. We only begin to see that if we're willing to look at our experience differently than we have ever looked at it before. If we try to bring the same views and opinions and agendas and judging and projections to this experience, we can't see clearly in the way the Buddha asked us to do. We have to make this radical shift of trying to strip away these layers, these accretions of our self-judgments and projections and conditioning to actually be able to see things clearly. This is really difficult for us to do. I'm sure you've had a sense of that already, just the force of the mind and these movements of craving that Carol was talking about last night that just keep us rolling around. So we have to learn how to let go of that a little and start to see differently, start to see more clearly. If we look at the way we normally see, from this perspective of clarity, of seeing clearly, we see how much delusion is in it, how much unclarity, and we're not aware of it. You know, it's so close to our experience that we think that is the way things are. The way I see things is the way things are. And if you don't see them the same, then you're wrong. You know, you're not seeing clearly because the way I see them is the way things are. So really starting to unwind that is, is as I said, quite a radical thing to do. 
So, of course, we study this a lot, how to see clearly and and what are the ways we're deluded. One of the books that was interesting for me to read, because I'm an animal person, love animals, love understanding animals, is a book by Temple Grandin, who's um, a self-declared autistic person, um, but very high-functioning. She's actually got, I don't know what level, PhD in animal behaviorism or something like that. Um, And she's spent her academic life studying animals because she feels that her autism enables her to see the world the way animals do. She's frightened by the same things. She sees in images and, and pictures rather than in words. And so she's very she's very much able to understand what animals are experiencing. And this book, Animals in Translation, is actually her work showing how animals see the world and how that can help us understand both them but certainly us, and the ways we don't see the world. We don't see it clearly. We think we're seeing it clearly, but we don't. So there's this great um, sequence in her book that I'm going to read from my digital companion here because I don't have all my notes and things from home, um, from this book. And it was a chapter called What People See and Don't See. Some of you may have read this or heard it. Uh, This is a fake It's a famous experiment. She starts, there's a famous experiment by a psychologist named Daniel Simons, head of the Visual Cognition Lab at the University of Illinois called Gorillas in Our Midst. You heard of it? Some people have. They actually showed it on the plane on the way over in that video. I was talking about the um, thing on the brain on attention. They showed this video. It's the first time I've seen it. That shows you how bad people's visual awareness is. In the experiment, they show people a videotape of a basketball game and ask them to count how many passes one team makes. Then a little while into the tape, while everyone is sitting there counting passes, a woman wearing a gorilla suit walks onto the screen, stops, turns, faces a camera and beats her fist on her chest. 50% of all people who watch this video don't see the gorilla. Even when the experimenters ask them directly, did you notice the gorilla, they say, the what? It's not that they don't remember the lady in the gorilla suit. Anyone who's forgotten something they saw will remember it when you give them a prompt. These folks actually didn't see the lady gorilla in the first place. She didn't register. The experimenters tested out their theory with another video in which an actor suddenly changes into a whole different person wearing a completely different set of clothes. 70% of normal people don't notice that either. They also showed that on the plane. That's the first time I've seen that. In one study, a blonde-haired man wearing a yellow suit handed students a form to fill in, fill out, then took the completed form behind a bookcase to file. When he came back out, he was a dark-haired man wearing a blue shirt. He wasn't the same guy in disguise. He was a whole different person. It didn't matter. 75% of the students had no idea they had just interacted with two different people. The scariest study, though, was one NASA did with commercial airline pilots. The researchers put them in a flight simulator and asked them to do a bunch of routine landings. But on some of the landing approaches, the experimenters added the image of a large commercial airplane parked on the runway, something a pilot would never see in real life, at least let's hope not. One quarter of the pilots landed right on top of the airplane. (laughs) They never saw it. I've seen photographs from the study, and what's interesting, if you're not a pilot, the parked plane is obvious. You can't miss it. 
and you don't have to be autistic to see it either. I'd bet the ranch that the only people who could possibly miss that plane would have to be commercial pilots. If you're a professional expecting to see what a professional would norm, a norm, what a professional normally would see, there's a 25% chance you'll miss a huge commercial aircraft parked crossways blocking the landing strip in a flight simulator. That's because normal people's perceptual systems are built to see what they're used to seeing. If they're used to seeing gorillas in the middle of basketball games, they see gorillas. If they're not used to seeing gorillas in the middle of basketball games, they don't. They have inattentional blindness. And I thought this was fascinating, just to give us a sense of what we think is reality, what we think we're assuming that we're all sharing the same reality, and we're making choices all the time, usually totally unconsciously, about what we're taking in. And there's a whole field now, or study, called inattentional blindness. And In fact, there's a book, book written on it. And even in this uh, Temple's book, she goes on to say, people don't consciously see any object unless they're paying direct, focused attention. And humans are built to see what they're expecting to see. So it's this weaving together of our experience. I think I talked about this the other night because I find it so fascinating. We think we're seeing reality, and what we're doing is stitching together what we assume is, should be there or from memory, and the amount we can actually pay attention to is very small, and what we actually really focus on is even smaller again. This is where meditation comes in to actually train us to expand this field of attention and to see clearly things as they are. Hopefully we would see gorillas if there were gorillas or we'd see a plane if there was a plane. Once we train in this to actually let go of some of the filtering and the projections and the, the, the um, conditioning around our seeing and actually see what's really there. Hopefully you've started to notice this already on retreat. Your senses actually get heightened. You're noticing things you perhaps never noticed before, certainly about your inner experience, things that come up that you know were unexpected or from long past or seeing in a fresh way, but certainly being out in nature. Have I mean, you noticed how your senses are heightened, this, the breeze on your skin, the temperature, the coolness or the warmth? Um, the flutter of the aspen leaves, being fascinated by a lizard or a chipmunk, sitting by the river and just absorbed into the beauty that's there. This is what happens on retreat. The food tastes great, doesn't it? When you actually have time to sit and taste it, and our cooks are doing an amazing job at stimulating our taste buds with this great food. But we're actually able to enjoy it, to be there for it, because... We've slowed down and we're paying attention and hopefully seeing more clearly, not just seeing but sensing more clearly than we usually do. So this is what happens when we cultivate presence, this this interested attention. We start to see more about our experience. Things come alive. As we do this practice, it's really important to remember it's not about becoming a good breather or a slow walker. I think we said this already. It really is about waking up and becoming present and seeing clearly, seeing things as they are, seeing through the layers of all of the stuff that's usually there. And this is called seeing the Dhamma, 
seeing the truth of things. This is the process that happens. What the Buddha said we see when we look in this way, he called the three characteristics or marks of existence. He said, everything has these qualities. And he didn't say, trust me on this. Um, you know, here's what you should believe if you want to understand. He said, go look for yourself. When you look at your experience, what is it you notice about experience? What is it that is universal, is a fact of life? What we actually usually start with, though, is seeing the ways we don't see clearly, the ways that we're caught in delusion one of the sources of our suffering, because we're seeing incorrectly. We're not seeing things the way they are. So what we usually think uh, think is that things are permanent, or I can hold on to things and make them permanent, that there is out there somewhere a source of lasting happiness. And the reason I'm not happy yet is just because I haven't tried hard enough or got the right experience or job or relationship or home or whatever. But out there somewhere there's happiness. And if I can just grab a hold of it and hold on to it, I'll find it and have it. And that the other belief is that there's something enduring, solid and permanent about me. That there's this fixity, this solidity about who I am. And that's, that's the truth of things. These are all um, sources of suffering. Because the Buddha said, they're not true. They're actually the very ways we are in delusion and cause much of our own suffering. He said that things are impermanent. The first characteristic, anicca, impermanent. That they're unsatisfactory in the sense of there's nothing out there that's going to bring us lasting happiness. He never said, you know, that you can't be happy or there's not beautiful qualities like joy and gratitude and peace and calm, but that it's not to be found by grasping on and holding to things or experience, and that there isn't anything solid at the center of this thing we call me, self. It's actually a changing, insubstantial array of conditioned experiences. So, again, this is part of the radical shift that the Buddha made of turning on its head the way we normally conceive. And remember, this is what he was telling people 2,500 years ago. They had these same thoughts, and actually some of them were woven into the Brahmanical religion, you know, that there was a permanent self. It was called Atta. And so the Buddha's teaching was, no, Anatta means not self, um, that he was really directly countering the teachings of the time. But if we start to look at our experience and understand this in the way we call insight, so it's not just you hear it or you think it or you read it, but actually understand it, it really changes the way that we understand our experience. And it is a doorway to freedom, to the unconditioned, to liberation, these three truths. This practice of mindfulness or vipassana, insight meditation, is actually designed to reveal these truths. When you look at your experience in the way we've been guiding on this retreat and that you've practiced before, 
this is what you start to see. Again, it's not something that, you know, is forced or you're led to believe in, should have faith in. This is what we see. As we start to notice moment to moment, these insights become apparent to all of us in different ways at different times. But this is the direction this practice goes in. And it's different when you actually have insight into these truths rather than, as I say, just think about them. You know, contemplating them and seeing them on other levels is really helpful to actually let them kind of percolate around. But it's very different when the mind-heart just sees and knows this is the truth of things. This is the way things are. The first of these truths is anicca, A-N-I-C-C-A. And that's the truth of impermanence, that things are always changing. And in some ways this is the easiest one to see, because if I asked any of you, do things change, you'd all say yes. You know, the weather changes, the time of day, my mood changes, I'm hungry, then I'm full. You know, we have evidence all around us of this kind of change. So we do see it. We, if once we start to look at the nature of our thoughts and our mind and we just see how crazy it is, how random and, you know, just stuff coming and going and, you know, what we felt like yesterday is totally different to what we feel like today. The simplicity of retreat really helps us tune into that kind of change, that level of change, because we're paying attention. It's happening all the time anyway, but we're running so fast, we don't notice it. We're, we're not tuned in to noticing it. But here, you know, nature is such a great teacher of impermanence. You just have to sit outside and, and keep your eyes open, and it's just this vibrating, shimmering uh, array, play of light and color and form, movement and and energy. So we start to take it in at certain levels. It's just, you know, if you you sit with this, it's just, yes, yes, this is true, this is true. But the deeper this goes, the more challenging it is to really contemplate what does it mean if everything is impermanent except the unconditioned if everything in this conditioned realm is impermanent. Guy was recently reading a book on the history of the world, and it was literally the history of the world. It started from the Big Bang and, you know, went up to, you know, 2010 or whatever. It was quite a, a bold undertaking. But it, it did talk about the Big Bang where apparently, and I still find this hard to believe, but that's a limitation of my mind, that the world went from, the, not the world, the universe went from nothing to everything in 10 to the minus 32 thousandths of a second. So what does that mean in the relationship to anything? You know, from nothing to, you know, and I know the worlds weren't formed, but what, you know, that's impermanence, isn't it? It's like, boom, and there it is all churning around. And it just goes on from there, right? Churning and changing and growing and falling apart. And what's interesting is the Buddha talked about it in those terms um, 2,500 years ago. He talks about world systems expanding and collapsing and then expanding again. So he had this idea too. So we have all these evident truths that it's always changing. Um, But most of the time we stay kind of superficial with this insight until we really have insight into it. 
a while ago, I forget if Carol was there, but I know Guy and I were at a teaching the Dalai Lama gave at the Shoreline Amphitheater, which is in the Bay Area, one of these big outdoor amphitheaters. So, I don't know, thousands of people, 3,000 people or something, all there, you know, hanging on his every word. Actually, some of it was boring, but every now and then, <laughs> you know, there was this one moment where he started teaching about impermanence, and you could feel the whole auditorium, it was absolutely whatever, the whole crowd just stop. Because he said, you know, you think you know impermanence. You think things arise and they last and then they pass away, right? You think that's impermanence and you know it. He said, that's not true at all. He said, there's no moment of stasis. There's no arise, persist, and pass away. There's just constant, 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 constant change at this kind of, you know, almost molecular level. And, you know, science is showing that, that it's all energy just moving. But you could, the whole... Thousands of people just stopped. He said it with such power and such force and such directionless. There's no moment of permanency. We think, oh, you know, impermanence. Well, I'll just hang on this little bit. I know it's going to change, but I'll hang on for this little bit here. One person said that uh, all suffering is rope burn. You know, we're hanging on and it's going. That's what we think. I, I understand impermanence. Just this thing, you know, this this way my body is. You know, when I look in the mirror, it can stay. You know, I know it's going to change, but let's like keep like this for a while. And we build our lives on this expectation of permanency, even as we have an idea that things are impermanent. We start saving for our three-year-old's college education or our retirement plans or whatever. And, of course, it's fine to plan in that way. You know, we need to make plans, but to have always the knowing that we don't know. We don't know. We can't know what's going to happen. And so in meditation, we really start to see this. It's like a microscope that we keep upping the amplification. You know, especially on longer retreats, as you sit with experience, it can really be revealed on a very intimate level right here in the body of the changing nature, the almost vibratory molecular nature of this very body, just shimmering with life and energy, and you look outside and that's all you see is is everything expressing the same elemental kind of nature. And so we see that. So we just start to open as we hear this teaching and look for ourselves, question, challenge, um, explore. This is the direction that this practice goes in to really opening. And instead of being a bummer, you know, everything changes, it's actually what makes everything possible. I mean, that's also obvious, isn't it? You know, that spring has to give way to summer, has to give way to fall, to winter. You know, that change is a necessary part of life, necessary part of all the growth that happens. There has to be death. But we always want the life part, not the death part, right? We, we, want, we want to hold on, even as much as we know that this is truth. But when we see it for ourselves as insight, it really helps us actually enjoy what's here, be really present for what's here, for this breath that will never be here again, this bird song, this time of day. will never be here in quite the same way again. So as we understand this truth, it actually helps us be more present and appreciate what is actually here in this moment and in this moment. And so it makes everything possible. It makes liberation possible. 
It makes our awakening possible. It means that our conditioned patterns can also change and we can find freedom and happiness. Which leads me to the next truth, which is dukkha. I'm saying freedom and happiness. Dukkha, Pali word dukkha, usually translated as suffering, but this word dukkha has a far broader range of meaning than just suffering. It's from the slightest sense of dissatisfaction or inadequacy, unreliability, to the deepest grief, pain, sorrow, and despair. Um, everything in between is, is dukkha. So sometimes it is just translated as unsatisfactoriness or unreliability or stress or anguish. Many, many words that you can use. And this, I, we talked about already, is a core insight of the Buddha, that dukkha is a fact of life. He didn't say life is dukkha. He just said there is dukkha. If you're in, have a mind and a body, there will be dukkha on some level. And, you know, a pervasive, as you get more subtle around what it is, what this word points to, it's really more pervasive. So it's the first noble truth. There is dukkha. There's a cause of dukkha and an end of dukkha. I think I said this already, that the Buddhism has a rap for being gloomy or pessimistic, but it really is, again, this Aikido move of turning towards the suffering to find the end of suffering. If we're in a state of antagonism, resisting, you know, it shouldn't be like this, we're just adding to the suffering. We're just causing so much of our own suffering. And so it's a real point to find what's the source of dukkha, what's the cause of this suffering, so I can untangle it, so I can unwind it, so I can actually come to an end of it. And so this is what the Buddha taught about for 45 years, suffering and the end of suffering. And of course, these three, anicca, dukkha, anatta, there's a real link between them. The fact that things are impermanent causes us suffering. The fact that there's nothing solid at the center that we can't control things causes us suffering. They all feed into each other. And so we have to start to see how our belief systems cause a huge amount of our own suffering that our habits of mind, our judgmental thinking, our sense of diminishment or shame or um, feeling of victimization, all of this causes our own suffering. And we think that we're doing it wrong, that somehow everyone else or a lot of people have figured this out and we're the ones that are struggling. And, you know, other people, especially if you look at the media, it's like, oh, you just buy, you know, I love these air freshener ads, right? The disgusting smell. Oh, plug it in and like flowers waft through your house and people walk in and they're smiling. All you need is the right air freshener with a little fan that turns on every time someone comes in the room. It's like life would be perfect then. But we're stuck with this mind and body and its nature, which is to change, that we're not in control. And so there's suffering. And our struggle with that is a big cause of our suffering because we think that we're doing it wrong, that we shouldn't be suffering, that we should be able to have a perfect life or a perfect relationship or a perfect job. Anyone found any of those yet? Please come and share your secrets. Actually, no, I have. Perfect. (laughs) Shouldn't say. Very blessed. 
but it's often these ideas that we have about how life should be that are actually causing us a lot of our suffering. I lead a program at Spirit Rock called the Dedicated Practitioners Program, and it's a two-year program, five retreats, and the retreats aren't in silence. They're interactive. They're, they're study, but it's very experiential, and we really go into the Buddha's teachings in depth and how we can bring them alive in our lives. And so there's homework and reflections and monthly groups and all kinds of things. But we do one retreat that's on what we call worldly dhammas, where... We study money and sexuality and relationships and, and um, livelihood and, and, and all of the things that as lay people we need to figure out. How do we do that as Dharma practitioners? And we do a session on creativity, you know, that the fact that, that to bring creativity into our lives in whatever form, even meditation as a creative act is really important to feel that aliveness. And one of the sessions, uh, we had Norman Fisher come, who's a Zen priest and a poet, and he came and um, had us all write poetry. And I can't remember exactly what he did, but it was great. You know, he had you write a verse, and then you crossed out the first line and put the last line first, and then you took the middle line and you put it at the end. And by the time you got finished, you'd given up trying to be perfect and making it look good. You just, you know, were moving things around. And it was so freeing. It was great. People felt really enlivened by it. But he finished with these very wise words of advice. He said, it's hard being a human being. There's a lot to it. There really is. So let's all agree to accept the reality that we are not going to be able to do a very good job at this. There's so too much to do. Isn't it a relief to know that it's not going to work out? So you're not going to get it right. You're not going to get it perfect. The worst possible outcome of my saying these things today would be for everyone to walk out of the room and think, oh, God, now I have to take up art. I've got to brush my teeth every day. I've got to go to the cleaners. My clothes are dirty. I've got my family. I've got children. I've got aging parents. I'm aging. I've got to go to the doctor, doctor's appointments, and now I've got to do art on top of that? How am I going to do that? Well, don't worry. Just remember there's no hope. (laughs) You're not going to be able to get it all done. It's not going to work out. But the important thing is, despite this and recognizing this and embracing this reality, don't worry about finishing the job or doing it perfectly because it's not going to happen. But start. You see? Start and continue. This is the thing. You can really trust that if you start... And if you will continue with commitment, that will be enough. That will be enough. Isn't it a relief? It's not going to work. It's not perfect. This is not a perfect realm. This is called samsara for a reason. So just accept that. Cut ourselves a little bit of slack and actually see if we can reduce the level of suffering by seeing things the way they really are instead of how we want them to be or our idealized imagining of how they should be. So this reflection on dukkha isn't meant to be a bummer. It isn't meant to say, oh no, it's, you know, everything's dark and gloomy. It's so that when things happen, and they will, we don't feel that it's wrong, or it shouldn't be happening, or we're the victim, and, you know, we're, we're, we've, we've done something wrong, we're to blame in some way. This sense of it shouldn't be like this. This is a truth of existence. 
And the more we can accept that, the more we can engage in it and not add what they call the second arrow. The first arrow is whatever the suffering is, and the second arrow is it shouldn't be happening. Why me? Why Why is this going on? You know, have I done something wrong? It's like, just be with things as they are. This is the direct seeing of mindfulness, of vipassana. And so the third of the insights is perhaps the most difficult, anatta, which I like to translate not as no-self, but not-self, because it's really to a, a pointing that there's nothing in our experience that we can grasp onto, label, identify, fix as being self. Yes, there's a construct, um, but in that there's nothing permanent. Now, this teaching is a really core one of the Buddhas, and it's the most challenging. It's the source of the most confusion, because as soon as people hear that, then there's the question, well, if there's no self, then what? And, you know, there's a whole string of jokes about that. If there's no self, then whose arthritis is this? You know, there's a, there's a whole page I found on, you know, where internet, the source of uh, all things crazy and sometimes funny, Jewish Buddhism. So there was that one. I found that because I, I was looking for no self joke. So if there's no self, whose arthritis is this? But they followed that by breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Forget this, and attaining enlightenment, enlightenment will be the least of your problems. <laughs> this is Jewish Buddhism. I didn't, I didn't make this up. Let your mind be as a floating cloud. Let your stillness be as a wooded glen. And sit up straight. You'll never meet the Buddha with such rounded shoulders. <laughs> so, a little bit of Jewish humor there. So, this teaching is not something we can understand intellectually. Um, it's helpful to contemplate it because as you get more familiar with the concept and there are ways we can see it just quite directly in our experience because if we if there was something solid, if there was something permanent, wouldn't we a- be able to, I don't know, control it in some better way or be more um, adept about how we navigate the world? if it was this fixed thing, but instead it's sort of like fog. You know, we go to look for it, and there's nothing actually there. There's just this construct that we've made up. And so it's this root, it's, it's all about this root question that many of us look to answer. You know, what what is this all about? Who am I? There's a great sutta uh, um, that talks about this kind of perplexity, and I just, this is a short quote from it where the Buddha says, people often ask, was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? And then it goes on to the future and to now and this kind of perplexed questioning. The Buddha actually said, this is not helpful. This is unwise attention to try and figure this out. This is not where you're going to find the answer that you need to answer, which is how to wake up and free yourself from suffering. It actually leads in the wrong direction because we just end up in this conundrum, this trap of questioning. In meditation, as we start to look at directly at this inner experience, we see what there actually is, is this kind of storytelling. We sit and we tell ourselves stories. And the main story we tell is the movie of me, the story of I. 
I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? But when you sit back a bit from it and watch it happening, it's, it's quite bizarre. Everything that happens, what does this mean about me? How does this affect me? What do they think about me? What is, you know, as I do this, what are they thinking about me and what I did and what I said and did I, what I said yesterday, was it okay? And what about tomorrow? And what am I wearing? And how am I looking? And, you know, we create this whole movie. We're the star of the movie. We write the script. We direct it. We produce it. And then we critique it. We're the movie reviewer. And we're going, oh, it didn't do so good there. You know, dialogue wasn't very perky, was it? You know, not a very intelligent script that one this is what we spend a huge amount of our time doing and a lot of the time I mean some of the time it's just happening we're not really even aware but a lot of the time again it's a source of suffering because we're critiquing and, and, and ridiculing even what we have said and done and we just be, can be so obsessed with this but in meditation when we really start to look at what's happening you see it's just stories it's just as Carol was pointing to this morning Thoughts in the mind, certain moods that pass through, yet we link it together, and it really is, it's like, you know, now it's, we won't be able to have this reference much longer with digital movies, but used to be 24 frames to a second or a minute? Minute. Second. Second. Thank you. Um, and if you run it uh, fast at that speed, it becomes seamless. So we think it's just this seamless flow. But meditation shows us it's just these little arisings of energy, of thought, of feeling. And if you really start to look, you know, at this sense of permanence, are you the same person you were even yesterday? Do you remember yesterday? You know, I don't know what it was like you. Some people I know had a little bit of headache or lightheadedness or grumpiness, um, you know, tiredness. And today it's like, oh, I feel different. I feel different. I am different. I'm not the same person. And if you go back a little longer, five years ago, are you the same person? Similar. Ten years ago. Twenty years ago, are you the same person? How far back do you have to go before you really see how different you are? There's not a solidity there. Yes, there's a continuity, but it's sort of more like dominoes falling rather than, you know an actual solid thing. So we start to see this, that it is just all of this stuff arising and passing. It's impermanent too. The Buddha's insight was that there's no entity separate from this flow of experience. There's nothing inner or outer that we can point to, grasp a hold of, and say, this is me. This is who I am. If you look all you will see are thoughts, emotions, moods, sensations. This is the truth of things. This is actually powerful. And so remember that when the Buddha was asked directly, he didn't say there was no self. He said there's nothing that is self, nothing that's permanent, enduring. This is what we need to investigate for ourselves because, yes, no one is denying there's this relative sense of self. You know, that you know which casita or tent to go back to. You know, you know, where you live and which clothes, shoes to put on outside and, you know, what your job is, etc. There's this relative sense. It has some seeming continuity to it. But to look more closely in that, to really see there's nothing solid there and that so much of our suffering comes from ascribing solidity 
to ourselves. Oh, I'm always like this. I'll never change. You know, my relationship with this person is is fixed, or my relationship to myself and my sense of judgment or shame or guilt or inadequacy. We create our suffering through believing that story and thinking that it's positive, I mean, permanent and unchanging. When we meditate and the mind finally, and I know you've all had just even moments of that, quietens down, who are you in those moments? When the mind is really quiet, and you know, there might be little thoughts here and there and sensations or whatever, but are you male or female, old or young, tall or short? You really look for yourself in those moments of spaciousness. There's no, you know, it's like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain pulling the levers. Not there. There's just this stuff happening. Now, often when people open to this insight, it can actually bring a lot of fear instead of being kind of freeing because our ego, this sense of self that's used to being in control and being like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain pulling all the levers, when we see that that's not like that, it's like, well, then who am I? You know, how will I exist? How will I communicate or even speak if there's not me there controlling everything? What we really have to see is it all still goes on, you know, in the, in the spaciousness where breathing and thoughts will come and we'll get up and go and have a meal. It all still functions. We don't need to be there to actually pull the levers in the way we think we do. And those, what we actually start to see, just like the Wizard of Oz, we're not actually that skillful at pulling a lot of those levers. We're, we're, we're trying to pull the wool over our lives and eyes and thinking that we know how to do it. And to actually let go a little, it's a huge relief. It's a huge relief. What I've noticed, I encourage you to look for yourself, that if I've been obsessing about me, which is, you know, where our thoughts mainly go, look and see if there's contraction in the body, in the mind, in the face. For me, it's a lot around, I feel it here in the bridge of my nose, it's kind of a tightening of the eyes. And so I've used that now. If I notice that physical experience, it's like turn back, oh, right, telling stories, planning, worrying, remembering. I relax the body and the thoughts relax a little. It's actually a great um, wrinkle prevention program. You just keep <laughs> relaxing, relaxing. It's true. You look in the mirror at the end of the retreat. Um <laughs> But to notice the contraction, that this selfing, and it is a verb, what we do is we create a self. It's a verb. We do it, and we do it over and over again. There's nearly always some contraction, and contraction is another word for suffering. You know, if we're contracting, it's suffering, and we can let go a little, start to trust the unfolding without this kind of drivenness. I know for me, I always thought, you know, as I heard about this concept of anatta, that I'd be meditating away and it'd be like a lightning bolt, you know, and it would just zap me and whatever was there, you know, this self would just be annihilated. It's not like that because there wasn't anything there to begin with. That's the trick. I mean, we think because we believe we don't see clearly the way things are. We think there's something there we have to get rid of. If we were a good Buddhist, we would get rid of the self. We'd like, you know, get out the self-annihilation 
gun or whatever and just zap it. It's not like that. It's just, it arises moment after moment and you see it and it can just let go. Arises again, oh, there's that self and just let go. Or sometimes we pick it up and we invest a little in it. And sooner or later we suffer. And it's like, oh, okay, can we let that go? And we're doing that again and again and again. This is the process that we're in. And when um, when I don't identify with myself in this, you know, fixed way, when I, when I identify, I have something to protect. There's a rigidity, there's a, an idea, you know, there's a story I'm telling, and it's separate. It's like, stay away from me, you know, protect me. When I can just be in the flow of things, there's peace and ease. I, it's not so rigid. I'm not having to defend as much. I'm not having to protect. So it just is more in alignment with the way things are. A while ago I heard <clears throat> Ramdas, that great teacher, you know, um, his book Be Here Now got many on a spiritual journey, I think back in the late 70s, early 80s. <coughs> he uh, gave this analogy about spiritual practice. He said, it's like you're going skydiving. Never been before, but you're quite determined to go. So you're up in the plane, you know, ready to do this and you jump out of the plane. There's that moment, ah! And then you realize you've forgotten your, what do you call it, your parachute, your parachute. So there's that moment of free fall, and you're like, ah! You know, that's fear, right? But then you realize there's no ground. And then it's okay, nowhere to land. So it's a great story about, you know, the kind of process of opening and and, um, dropping away of belief systems and control. But actually, as I thought about it, I realized what, and he didn't say it in this way, but these are the three characteristics. So there you are in the plane, you jump out. That's a Nietzsche, right? Everything's whizzing by. Forget the parachute, that's dukkha, right? <laughs> Nowhere to land, that's anatta. You know, we're not landing in a solidity. And when we don't land, when we don't think there's this solidity there, there's freedom. There's the possibility of openness and peace and ease. And so for me, it's just amazing that these teachings that begin with sitting down and paying attention to the breath, and it can seem so banal at times, and I know boring and frustrating, and yet from this simple act of paying attention, these deep truths can be revealed that can take us all the way to the deepest freedom and happiness and contentment that's possible from just paying attention and starting to see things clearly, starting to see things the way they are, becoming in alignment with the Dhamma. This is the direction this path and these teachings go in. And I hope that you're already beginning to see that um, letting go is actually a source of happiness rather than something to be afraid of, that we let go to receive these gifts of freedom and happiness, and that not holding on, not resisting, seeing things the way they are, being in alignment with these truths is actually the source of happiness 
and the way that we will find freedom. And this is what the Buddha said was possible for us all. So... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.